Hello, everyone. We're back with another episode of The Envelope from the Los Angeles Times, where we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the talents behind your favorite movies and TV shows. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Olson. And I'm your other host, Yvonne Villarreal. So, Mark, this is the last episode of our season, and we're going out big. We are talking about a show that is no longer with us, but whose cultural imprint was so large, we will probably be seeing references or getting that theme stuck in our heads for years to come. You know, that's right, Yvonne. After four seasons, a successor was finally named, and HBO's succession came to a close. Following the Roy family through the unexpected ups and downs of what became much more than just a boardroom drama has really been a wild ride. The show has been critically acclaimed and has received 27 Emmy nominations for its final season, the most for any drama. For this week's episode, we shook things up a bit and we're speaking with someone from behind the camera, Mark Mylod, a longtime director and producer on the series. Finally, a Marky Mark conversation. (laughs) I have nothing to do with that. (laughs) Now, the British-born director was also nominated for an Emmy for Best Directing. And Mark is not just known for Succession, though. He's directed on Shameless, Entourage, Game of Thrones. And he also made the class-conscious comedy The Menu, where guests dine at an exclusive restaurant on a private island that became a surprise hit last year. And he made that between seasons of Succession. I'm sensing a theme here between those two projects, you know, this dramatizing of the uber-wealthy. Yes, and he had some surprisingly personal things to say about that as we talked about what motivates him to make the work that he does. So let's get to that conversation. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. And now as we're having this conversation in Hollywood, writers and actors are both on strike. I'm speaking to you as a director. And what is that like to sort of be thinking about something like the Emmys at a moment like this, and then also for you to kind of be the only sort of available representative for the show. Mm. There is obviously a conflict of interest there, isn't there, in that obviously the most importantly one stands, and I think all my director friends and colleagues stand in complete support of the writers and actors that we work with and without whom nothing gets done. And it seems to me that the way that we consume content over the past few years has just evolved so quickly, and yet the way we pay these artists is not, and that needs to change. So, of course, I stand in support of them. I mean, one thing that I've found really interesting is how much sort of strike commentary picket signs have been related to succession, that, like, the show has become sort of memefied in a way around the strike. What is that like for you? Like, is it interesting for you to see the show be sort of picked up and become part of like a cultural commentary in that way. I I imagine that part of that reason, Mark, is because I think Succession as a show just absolutely typifies those two particular art forms or crafts Mm. at their absolute zenith and why they are so important to the content that we enjoy and celebrate and the studios obviously need and celebrate. What would Succession be without the incredible writing of Jesse and his team and that incredible cast? Those two art forms are just at their kind of perfect entwining and in, in succession. So, of course, it makes sense that uh, that it becomes a bit of a banner for the for the protest. The show became so immensely popular, and especially in this last season, like every episode was just sort of like dissected and examined so sort of microscopically. Did you engage with that work at all? Like, do you do you read any of the coverage of the show as it's coming out week to week? 
Not really. No, I, I don't. I don't find it helpful, Mark, particularly going forward. It, it, um, I'm always worried. Oh, yeah, I spend my life being kind of uh, worried <laughs> that 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 things that things will be distracting. That um, I find I. I'm at my most effective, I think, when I'm just head down and worried about nothing but the script, the performance, the tone, the execution of directing and making the show. And anything outside of that, I worry is going to be a distraction. And part of that is um, superstition, but part of that is also experience where, you know, because I've been directing for quite a while, I've seen, and I'm sure I've been guilty of it, I know I've been guilty of it myself, where I have been distracted by by the reaction mm. to a show. Uh, and there, whether consciously or not, one starts to play into that somehow. Um, and I think as soon as one does, then that's probably an unhealthy an unhealthy way to work. When, when did that happen to you? When do you think you felt guilty of that? Um, particularly my early comedy days um i don't want to talk about american projects because they're too recent and i don't want to uh, you know uh, unconsciously offend collaborators from that time um but going back to before i moved to america when i first started directing i i was lucky enough to work with some very very funny comedians who really kind of had the comedic zeitgeist at the time and because the shows and their work were so celebrated um, going into subsequent seasons, um, I'd be hearing all the talk. Um, this was pre-Twitter, um, but but I'd be hearing all the talk in the media coverage about you know certain sketches, certain catchphrases, um, and the temptation was, you know, to to repeat that, you know, to or let's give them more of what they want. Um, um, so that so there would be that. We always had a creed of you know kind of anti-complacency as best we could there's a million other mistakes to be made but hopefully it wouldn't be through lack of trying um and uh and so once a season came out you know if I knew um that there was going to be another season I would deliberately tune out from that as much as possible but the, the exception being obviously when season four was airing because by the time we got to mid-season you know, I kind of finished post on the on the final episode, so so I, I could I could read as much as I wanted at that point with a clear conscience. Um, so I did um, I did enjoy um, the discourse a little more after season four. <laughs> and tell me uh, just a little more about that transition from working in British television to then coming to America to work in television. It's interesting to me that behind the scenes on Succession, there are so many, you know, British collaborators. And I'm wondering, in some ways, like, to, in your mind, is Succession almost like a hybrid, like, UK-US production? Um, I suppose so, in the terms... In that there are so many brilliant British writers in the writers' room, and obviously the, you know, the creator of the show is, you know, Jesse is, is English, as you know. Um... um it's funny though because I think in the past, I don't know how many years, but that British versus America thing, which back when I started directing, it seems such a they seem chasms. They did seem an ocean apart, and and I don't think that now. I think that both sides have 
have kind of taken good things from one another. The the, the, the writer's room, for instance, uh, has become commonplace now and probably the norm in, you know, particularly in larger scale dramas or comedies in the UK in a way that it never was when I first started. It would always, you know, almost almost invariably be one or two writers maybe. This uh, When I did the British pilot of, of Shameless, um, they did have a little gang of writers uh, supporting Paul Abbott. Um, but that was very, that was very new at that time. And that was 2004, 2005. So it's relatively new that that idea has transferred to the UK. Um, in terms of what Britain has given to to the US industry, I don't know. Jesse Armstrong and uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, maybe. That's, that's a pretty decent contribution. A number of actors on the show, like especially I'm thinking of Sarah Snook and Jeremy Strong, were relatively unknown when they were cast in the show and, you know, have really become quite famous and much better known through the course of the show. What has it been like for you over the series, you know, the multiple seasons of the show to see them develop not only as performers to sort of grow into their role, but also to see them sort of launch in the way that they have? Oh, wonderful, obviously. Um, I mean, first of all, I've got to give a quick shout out to Francine Mazer, who the, the casting director who did the original, you know, casting of the siblings and of uh, and of Logan. Uh, it's one of the great, you know, uh, casting choices, you know, in 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 recent television history. I think because, as you say, so many of the the cast are unheralded, and who the heck knew that you know that, that Mr. Darcy was absolutely hilarious? <laughs> I had no idea that Matthew had that side to his to his performance. Um, just absolutely genius casting. But seeing the the rising kind of popularity, appreciation of the show over four seasons, um, and particularly of their talents. Um, has been great seeing the Emmy nominations this year and and seeing a lead actor nomination for Sarah, a lead actor nomination for Kieran, uh, a supporting actor for Alan for the first time, and it, um, and all that brilliant cast of you know guest actors with Alexander being so fantastic and and mm. all of that gang seeing them so kind of appreciated by the Academy it just it gives me pride almost at, at the risk of sounding patronising almost a kind of Eternal pride um, that they've grasped that incredible opportunity of that incredible writing with both hands and just uh, um, and just dug into it with a tenacity to leave no stone unturned in exploring those characters. And now the the characters on the show they are seen as greedy, selfish, cruel. I mean, they often are you know giving into their worst impulses and yet in some ways that's almost like what I think draws audiences to them and makes them seem somehow mm. more human is that we so often are seeing them at their worst is that part of the draw like wh why do you think that audiences became so attached to these you know what could be seen as awful awful people it's an interesting one isn't it I'll answer the question in two parts if that's okay Mark F firstly by my own experience of it, having watched the pilot that Adam McKay directed so beautifully, having seen that beautifully kind of bombastic, couldn't give a shit, it seemed like nobody making that show cared that those characters were so 
despicable and entitled. And there was something so ballsy about that and so prescient to me in the time of Trump, you know, still being president at that time. It just felt like it had that zeitgeist. But in terms of joining the show, my hope was that we would start from that place and then gradually, you know, coming back to the PhD of the characters, start to peel back the layers and and start to start to investigate the context of, of their behaviours, not to forgive them, not to be apologists for them, but at least to give it context. I think in our efforts to do that, I think we were finding our way somewhat in season one. And for me, the first kind of breakthrough, if you like, at least in episodes that I directed, was the last two episodes of season one at Shiv and Tom's wedding. We had two key scenes in Shiv and Tom's bedroom where they talked about their marriage. And I just wanted to uh, say that... I, uh, I did meet Nate. Oh, you... You've met Nate before, I think. No? Oh. Uh, oh, well, he's a... You know, he's a good colleague. And, uh... You know, he's a friend of Kendall's. They run around in Shanghai together. And he's a dick. Uh, well, he's okay, but he has a certain dickish quality about him. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I've mentioned him to you before. Look, Shiv, uh, is this real? We found a portal into examining the emotional lives of the character. But up until that point, we'd very much played through ironic deflection. And that we continue to evolve through subsequent seasons. And gradually, I imagine, because it was certainly my experience, that we got under the skin of those characters. And despite ourselves, we found ourselves caring. If you're enjoying this interview and want to keep up with future episodes, make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Envelope and my conversation with Mark Mylod. I've heard you talk about how, for example, in the Connor's Wedding episode, that initially you didn't intend to use as much of Matthew McFadyen's side of the phone call as you did, but that his performance was sort of so strong that you, in the edit, you just felt yourself pulled back to that. How do you stay open to that? Like, sort of allow yourself to realize, like, oh, this is something that's really working. We should move towards that and not stay on, like, a really sort of, like, strict plan. I think it's difficult if you don't plan for it. If you, I, I think we set up, you know, the, the producer side of my role on the show was really about setting up our stall at the beginning of each season to give ourselves absolute kind of maximum leeway and creative freedom and the ability to pivot, whether it be within a scene or you know, in, in some cases, you know, changing a major location for an entire episode at, at quite short notice. So, so setting up the way we light the show, the way we record sound, to give at every level maximum pivotability, if that probably isn't a word, is it? Um, One example that I've talked about in the past was in Connor's wedding. I knew that we had it, but I also felt that there was something a little bit more to mine. And 
along with my assistant director team and with Patrick, the DP again, we created, we carved out a two-hour period at the end of the last day shooting on the boat with this idea, this burgeoning idea of what if we just run it all in one go, one half-hour unbroken take. And the scenes themselves took place on four, three or four different levels of the boat. So to shoot that with our, with I think three camera operators set on different levels of the boat in one unbroken take for half an hour was quite a feat. It allowed the actors to disappear into the intensity of that moment in a, in a, in a phenomenally unbroken way. And I'm so proud of their performances in that. Um, in terms of Matthew's performance, uh, and so it became a, a gorgeous dilemma in the edit, really, to try to get that balance right. And uh, I think it probably ended up quite close to the original script, but there were some real dilemmas there when the little moments that Matthew gave us where the sheer effort of keeping that facade up of, you know, that pretense that maybe Logan wasn't actually dead was just too much for the character to bear. And... Having accomplished that long take the way that you did, was it difficult in the edit to not be precious with it and to like have the impulse be to like show it off? And that it, like it's interesting that you you did that, but then you still cut away from it and yet somehow maintain the energy and the momentum of that single take. In, in terms of the you know showboating, wow, look, we did this in one take. That that wasn't you know that obviously as a director that is slightly tempting. I'd be disingenuous to say it wasn't, but uh, um, but much more important was really to get the best material. You know, the best you know choose the best bits. You know, that's what editing is. You know, the best bits in the right order. So it, it was just more important to make those choices uh, as purely as possible, and specifically because. Once it became clear that so much of the performance was on this extra level of tension and pain from the siblings, that became very much the anchor. The way in that episode, the way that each of the siblings get like a moment on the phone with Logan that sort of becomes this distillation of their relationship with him. Like, it's so astonishing how... Like, so much is said in just a few short sentences from each of them. Uh, I hope you're okay. Uh, you're okay. You're, you're going to be okay. Uh, because you're, you're a monster. And you're gonna win. Because you just, you just win. And, uh, you're a good, you're a good man. You're a good dad. You're a very, very good dad. Uh, you did a good job. No. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know how to do that. You can, I can't. Yeah, I, I mean, brilliant writing and brilliant acting. That's why we need to pay these people properly. Oh, it's an incredible moment, just incredible. Um, you know, my directing role on the show, there's so much, you know, to get right tonally a million tiny things. But, you know, when those actors, when they walked on set every day of that episode and pretty much every day of that season, they would just be pitch perfect with tone. But they walked on just locked and loaded. Can you tell me a little bit more about your collaboration with Jesse Armstrong and how that's evolved over the course of the seasons? Like, does he talk to you as things are being written? Do the scripts just sort of arrive to you fully finished? Yeah, I'll start it by saying that the collaboration with Jesse is the loveliest and I think most productive and closest collaboration that I've ever had with a writer um, in quite a few years of directing and Jesse is on another level. Um, I think 
the nucleus of it really was the bonding experience of the last two episodes of season one, both of which I directed, which was Shiv and Tom's wedding over in England. It was such an intense period. It was really our first time shooting out of the country. Um, Coming out of the season and putting those last two episodes together was such a joy. Uh, And we were of of one mind, excuse the cliché that kind of fast-tracked our mutual trust so that when we got into season two and and understanding that our kind of various kind of strengths and what we could bring is that the way it would work where Jesse would uh, pretty much send a document or have a conversation and say, okay, I think, you know, maybe the first episode is going to be here and the second episode is going to be probably here and and, and the fifth episode we're probably going to need some old kind of, you know, liberal rich people's house. So we'll get a briefing uh, and then my my job is to basically work with the team, work with the cast, work with the crew to actually put those building blocks in places to find those locations so that we can, you know, visually eventize each episode and give a structure, hopefully a structural build to each season, find the right, you know, supporting cast, the right directors, all, all that kind of, you know, production and craft element. Jesse would then be able to focus in the writer's room. I would focus on, you know, physical production. And then we'd kind of meet up again on set. And uh, and it became a, just a lovely collaboration of, you know, just best idea wins. And, and that would continue into post-production. If I can, I want to step back just a little bit to ask you about the the movie The Menu that you directed kind of amidst, I guess, between seasons on the show. What was it like for you to sort of like step away from, you know, the intensity of working on the show to make this whole other project to make The Menu? Oddly kind of unbroken in terms of its intensity, in the way it played out, we shot The Menu... We edited it, and as I was getting into final post-production on the menu, I was then, you know, starting pre-production meetings for season four of Succession, which then, you know, continued on for the next year. So the intensity of it was just unbroken, really. The menu and it's, you know, very different, but actually shared a lot of um, DNA in that, you know, Will, Will Tracy was, um, was, of course, one of our writers on Succession. So we we already had that relationship together Um but it was really hard work, is the truth, Mark. I was just so... Uh, I've never been so tired, but also I've never been so kind of creatively alive. You know, after three years of that kind of intensity, I, I felt like I just needed to lie in a bath for two years. <laughs> and now the menu and succession are connected in a way that even, I think, relates to some of your work on Shameless or even going back to Entourage, and that there is an interest in a class consciousness in your work. And I'm wondering how aware are you of that? And to you, like, what is that getting at? Like, what is your sort of interest in this ongoing exploration of the impact of wealth and class on people's lives? Class and family and power, I suppose, are ongoing fascinations, particularly class and family. When it comes to class, it's a little bit uncomfortable but it's really I think if I'm really honest you know my dad was a cop and my mum worked in a bra factory and it's a it's a kind of revenge I don't know I don't know what it is I, I when I first got involved with the industry also you know I completely failed my A-levels which is the 
UK equivalent of a high school diploma. I didn't make it out of high school. I failed all of that and didn't go to college. I just went straight to work in theatres backstage. So I think I've always had a chip on my shoulder. And when I joined or tried to find my way into the British television and film industry, it seemed to me probably unrealistically, but it, it suited my you know, particular prejudice at that time to imagine that everybody else had been to Oxford or Cambridge and their parents, you know, owned a manor somewhere. For a long time, that was a fuel that drove me, I suppose, trying to prove that, you know, that the policeman's son from Devon could play in that world and, and be as good as all those people who seem to walk around with such self-belief and confidence that I've never had. So, yeah, a bit too self-analytical there, maybe, but that's probably the truth. And do you feel like that's something that still motivates you? Oh, yes. Yeah, I can't get rid of that. Yeah, it's a lifelong... I call it imposter syndrome, you know, that, that that's still there. It's nice when you have, you know, the victories, if you like. That's not really the right word, is it? But, um, but it is so lovely on every level when something that one works on is appreciated on, on whatever level but I also know that you're just one project away from the next face plant so it, the minute you let your guard down that's when you know that's when you prove everybody right that you know that you are just an upstart you shouldn't be in the room and at a step even a little further back I'm, I'm really fascinated by this in that you in 2011, you directed a film called What's Your Number, a rom-com mm. starring Anna Ferris. And after that, you sort of, you've talked about how you really purposefully wanted to kind of reset your career. And I'm interested mm. in that moment. Like, what was it that you wanted to change? And like, how did you make that happen? What's the first step in achieving that? First step is self-realization, being a realist, I suppose, and, and being honest with the kind of mere culprit of that moment. When I started directing and achieved some success, particularly in the UK at that time, with some wonderful comedians that I was working with uh, and projects like The Royal Family and Paul Abbott's Shameless, and then making a film that didn't do any business, which was entirely my fault, um, I came over to America and started working on Entourage and HBO, which kind of reset my life. There was, you know very sad things going on in my personal life and the breakdown of a marriage with my two older daughters involved. And that um, that was a really dark time. I think I just doubled down on staying in my safe box of, you know, of comedy or versions of comedy without pushing myself. And there were some really, really interesting scripts coming my way, particularly after The British Shameless came out, which was very well received. It was the first kind of quasi-drama that I'd done. But instead of being emboldened by that to take more creative risks, I just stayed in my, you know, safe box. And I paid quite rightly, I paid the creative price for that. I became kind of stuck in that and chose safe projects that I thought would do well commercially, telling myself that if I, you know, had a commercial, that'd be good because that would open the door to other more adventurous projects or tonally complex projects. But what I was actually doing was being a Cowardly. And that just came to a head with What's Your Number? And with a brilliant cast and two lovely writers, you know, they all deserve better. And the film did no business or relatively little business. Some people like it, but I wasn't proud of it and I wasn't proud of my work on it because I just hadn't pushed it enough, you know. Um, and I remember just after that, just thinking, OK, if you want the right to tell stories, you better have something interesting to say, you know. So there was a real, yeah, reckoning 
and a determination to push myself and not be afraid, or, or rather to move towards that which I was afraid of instead of just running away from it. And the first really kind of meaningful opportunity for that was the affair pilot, which I thought was such a boldly intimate piece of writing. And it was terrifying because it had this Rashomon type structure. It, it was so complex, it was so nuanced, but most of all, it was so intimate. But firstly of all, I've related somewhat to a lot of what was going on through personal experience, but I pushed hard for the project and I, you know, I did a good job. Um, that was a life changer, it really was. That emboldened me to go and chase down David and Dan on Game of Thrones and explain to them in a room in Los Angeles why I should be directing Game of Thrones, despite the fact that everything I'd done was really small and low budget and led to a brilliant adventure and massively steep learning curve on Game of Thrones. And uh, my experience over that, you know, second half of the decade up until now has been one that, yeah, being bold when facing down my own fears has been rewarding it sounds such an awful kind of cheese ball answer but that i think is the truth mark no that's such a wonderful thing to hear that like you could sort of pull yourself out from to recognize the moment in the first place and to sort of like turn it around like that is i find really inspiring Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, I feel better about it now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and now, as you said, you've come to the end of this really long run of work with both Succession and The Menu. Moving forward, do you see yourself making another series? Do you think you're going to want to make a movie? Like, do you have some idea of like which you're drawn to to do next? I, I know that I want to do more of both. I do feel, you know, emboldened by The Menu, finally making a film that I was proud of. I, 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 you know, I feel somewhat emboldened by you know, but also intimidated by the success of Succession. But I am hungry to do more. I feel I've got more to say, which is a nice feeling. I'm hungry to tell good stories, complex stories uh, and original stories, what form they take, you know, whether a series, a miniseries or a movie. I, um, I hope I can do them all. I really do, Mark. Obviously, with our strike, you know, the, it, there's an imposed moratorium anyway, but... Um, but I do need to kind of empty my brain and just read books and, uh, and you know, try to learn how to fish and all that cheese ball stuff. Well, I, I, for one, can't wait to see what happens next. Mark Mylod, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. It was lovely talking to you. The Envelope is a Los Angeles Times production. It is produced by Mara Laser and Taya Francesca Price and edited by Mitra Caboli. This episode was mixed and mastered by Mario Diaz. Our executive producer is Hiba Elorbani. Our theme music is by Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Matt Brennan, Jasmine Aguilera, Shawnee Hilton, Elena Howe, Kayla Bell, Patricia Gardner, Dylan Harris, Brandon Sides, David Veramontes, and Vanessa Franco. I'm Mark Olson. And I'm Yvonne Villarreal. Thanks for hanging with us this season. 